Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the AMPT podcast. My name is Danu Jayasilan, and I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Mark Shepard today. Dr. Shepard is the program director of Bellin College's Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Fellowship Program. He completed his doctorate in physical therapy from Sacred Heart University, his doctorate of science degree at Bellin College, and his fellowship training through Bellin College. And on a personal note, Dr. Shepard and I actually go back all the way back to JMU and undergrad days when he was doing all these big things as well. Today, we'll be discussing his recent publication in JMMT titled, The Influence of Manual Therapy Dosing on Outcomes in Patients with Hip Osteoarthritis, a Systematic Review. This paper was co-authored by Joshua Shumway, Robert Salvatore, Daniel Rohn, and Jody Young. Dr. Shepard, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Happy to be here, man. So before we dig into the clinical impact and the relevance and the the take-home points of your Systematic Review, can you give the audience a brief recap of what you looked at and what you found? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, first, I think it's uh, important to thank the team I was able to work with in producing this review. Uh, Josh and Bob were, you know, great at at just coming together as a team to to do a lot of the grunt work. This was our first systematic review, um, and and Jody and Dan really served as our you know, uh, guides and, and really helped us make sure we were living up to, you know, what we needed to do to do a, uh, what we think is a quality review. So big shout out to the team first for just putting this together. Uh, for those listening, a systematic review is probably the hardest research trial or whatever you want to call it, uh, a project I've worked on, just the amount of work that goes into it, which is good. That's what you want out of a trial that's high level evidence, uh, according to our hierarchy. But anyway, uh, I think all of us listening uh, hopefully have uh, seen a lot of people with hip OA. So you kind of understand how these folks present. And and hopefully you're familiar with the 2017 hip OA clinical practice guidelines, which uh, supports the use of thrust and non-thrust techniques for this population. However, we wanted to know, you know, is there a specific dosage of manual therapy that leads to optimal outcomes? So the purpose of our review uh, was twofold. The first being that we wanted to determine that if there is a specific dosage related to manual therapy to improve outcomes such as pain, disability, quality of life in, in those with hip OA, and then two, to determine uh, recommendations for optimal manual therapy dosing based on what we, we found in our review. So what we did is we uh, followed the PRISMA guidelines, which really give you the steps to do a quality review, and we got it registered uh, via Prospero, and we only included RCTs as part of our review. And a key piece of those RCTs is that they had to have detailed description of manual therapy dosing parameters such as manual therapy force, duration, frequency, you know, how long over a period of weeks did they perform that. So we excluded trials that use soft tissue mobilization, massage, or trigger point dry needling, or who didn't have a diagnosis, clinical diagnosis of HIPOA. We performed uh, risk of bias and certainty of evidence assessments, and then we reported 
uh, within and between group differences uh, for each outcome measure. So as we set up the process, we, we did our screening. We looked at originally over 4,000 studies, 4,500 studies, out of which only 33 were eligible for full review. So the good thing was it, it wasn't a ton of full text articles we had to review, but it was a lot of screening up front. And then out of those 33, 10 of those made the final cut with the total of 768 participants that we, we looked at. So certain trends emerged from our, from our review. The first being that we found large effect sizes for using long axis distraction, using mobilization and thrust manipulation techniques, uh, using mobilization with movement also showed large effects for pain and range of motion. And there were small effects seen uh, for graded mobilization. When you look at duration of manual therapy use, 10 to 30 minutes per session, spaced out over a frequency of two to three times per week, over two to six weeks, were kind of the most common dosing parameters that we came across. But despite all this, uh, due to kind of the variability that we saw in manual therapy dosing, uh, it was really difficult for us to recommend a specific dosage. First, have to go ahead and say one congrats to the team for being willing to go through this process, having published a few systematic reviews. I know this is a very tedious and laborious process at times, but it does offer conclusions about a specific topic. And often readers and digesters of the research will go to those conclusions and find out was the question answered. But I think it's first important to think, you know, quality in means quality out or junk in means junk out. So when you actually investigate the, the quality of these studies, you also have to consider the risk of bias, which you did. And with a lot of manual therapy studies, there is a high risk of bias. And so I wonder, can you speak to the reason why you think manual therapy is kind of predisposed to a higher risk of bias and what that means and what the implications are in interpreting results? Yeah. And this is such a good question. I'm glad you bring it up. Because it was definitely, you know, it's a hallmark of the reviews to look at risk of bias. And, and if you look at our, our, our review in, in figure three, we, you'll see the results of the risk of bias. And, and what we found was that 50% of the studies, so five of those RCTs had high risk of bias. And the other 50% had some concerns for risk of bias. So there was zero of our studies had low risk of bias. So that, that's something I think to, to consider there. And when you assess risk of bias, uh, not to get too much into the weeds, but I think it's important to understand how you assess it because that will tell you how we got to our conclusions. We used a tool call, called the Cochrane Risk of Bias Tool version two for all of you out there wanting to know what version it was version two, um, which is the most updated one. We almost started using version one and then version two came out like why we're in the middle of this. So we were luckily, I remember being happy that we, we found that before we went too, too far into things. But this tool looks at five domains. The first is related to the randomization process. The second is looking at deviations from the intended intervention. So, you know, did people stay blinded? Did, did people fail to stay true to the treatment protocol? The third domain is uh, missing outcome data. The fourth is looking at measurement of the outcomes. So were the outcome measures actually uh, appropriate for what they were intended to measure? Or could there be differences in measurements between groups? And that's going to be something important because we'll probably talk about this a little later. 
And then finally, uh, the selection of the reported results. So did the reported uh, reporting of the predetermined protocol, um, was that out there or were there multiple analyses of, of an outcome measure? So the big hit for risk of bias in our review was measurement of the outcome, specifically with the outcome of range of motion. Now, when you look at the data in the literature, there is some data that says that inter-rater reliability is good for hip range of motion. However, you know, there's always room for the opportunity of having differing measurement processes with range of motion, right? So, you know, measurements of range of motion could have been different between those receiving manual therapy versus a control group. Let's say someone's hip flexion in one of the groups may have been recorded differently if the landmarks uh, were not correctly identified. Or let's say someone who's taking range of motion has a bias towards the treatment they're providing. Maybe they you know, did a fellowship in manual therapy and by God, manual therapy is going to be the best. So they, they almost bias that measurement towards a favorable measure. So in manual therapy in general, when we use outcomes like range of motion or even questionnaires, there's that room for bias to you know pop in, and and the same goes for blinding. It's it's nearly impossible to blind a clinician for what manual therapy treatment they may be providing, which you know obviously plays into bias. So when you look at you know dosing parameters as part of you know manual therapy, another aspect that could hit into this bias piece is that you know a lot of studies will say this is what we wanted to do for manual therapy but few of the studies we tracked actually made sure that was what actually happened the actual application of the manual therapy done may not have been what they predetermined or said they would do um so those components when you put them all together i think that's why it's really challenging in manual therapy to, to really try to control for, for bias. Yeah. And that bias, whether it's in the measurement or the application or the lack of blinding, those are actually uh, some common talking points for some people that say why manual therapy is not effective, you know, and this argument of is manual therapy effective or not, should it be used or not? That's like a, a constantly uh, head spinning argument that goes nowhere. But I think there's enough out there really to show that manual therapy can be useful, whether it's with or without other things for a number of different conditions. So, you know, for me, if something could be useful, then I might go ahead and think about using it. But one appropriate and common uh, criticism, I think, of manual therapy is when we look at a lot of the studies, there's a lot of within group improvement. So the group that gets manual therapy oftentimes gets better. But when you actually compare that to a sham or a different comparator, those differences don't seem to be as big. And so comparatively, it could be argued that manual therapy is not as effective compared to other things. Can you remind me which outcomes tended to have better between group improvement for manual therapy? Yeah. So I'm glad you're bringing up this, this, uh, this point because I think it's really important, but we, we saw, you know, pretty much across the board, you know, large within group uh, effect sizes and outcomes pretty much for all of our outcomes that, that we had. So that's, that's really where, you know, like you're saying, you're pretty much going to see those, those changes that are usually more dramatic when you're looking at within group effects. So I think if we kind of 
take a step back, I think it's important for the listener to to understand the difference between within group and between group changes, because I think it's an area for people to really um, maybe misinterpret or be misled um, in in the conclusions or the results. And, and this is something we definitely called out in the discussion of our article. I actually think it's one of the most important findings from a review. When you look at within group effects, you know, this is really related to or, or interpreted with caution because it's related to a measurement that is done almost like a pre-post style um, change within like one person within a treatment group. This is change, basically the word change, okay, which is not the same thing as the treatment effect or a difference when you're comparing two separate groups. So the key distinction here is between the word change versus difference. And Stephen Camper does a really nice job writing about this distinction in a 2019 JOSBT Evidence in Practice article that I, I think is a must read for, for people who you know consume literature. And so when you think about change essentially being a pre-post difference assessment there for a person within one group, and then you compare that to the difference between groups. The, the key kind of separator there is when you're looking at between group effect sizes is that you're comparing data, like usually the outcome mean, from two separate groups, not a person within the same treatment group. So the problem here is that one can interpret within group change and conclude that the treatment was effective. However, we can't say that the changes were, you know, influenced by things like nonspecific effects or regression to the mean or just, you know, people getting better over time. And so, you know, that critical distinction is that the between group effect size, if study methodology is strong, it, it can account for these things or at least try to control for them as best we can. Where authors can potentially mislead readers is by reporting only within group effects which like you said, it's, it's pretty much in most cases going to show that there was effective treatment given whatever they did. And interpreting in this way like defeats the purpose of even randomizing groups or even having a comparison group. You're only going to report within group uh, changes then why even have a right. comparator group? Yeah, good point. So, you know, tying this to our review, we again found large within group changes uh, in almost all of the outcomes that we found. And this tells the reader that, you know, if you use manual therapy in someone with hip OA, you likely will change range of motion, pain, and function. However, due to the varied and small between group effects, manual therapy may not be any more effective than exercise, ultrasound, or a sham technique. And this is likely what clinicians see in the clinic where we can make changes using manual therapy in this population, but I think it's important to acknowledge that these techniques should not be used in isolation or even the majority of the session. That's really what we're seeing, at least when you pull the data from these, from these trials. Yeah, and that's a pragmatic way of looking at it is to say manual therapy when used can help, but is it going to help more than other things? We're not exactly sure. But one of the things you looked at in your study was actually the dosing of manual therapy. And so I think this speaks to a bigger gap really in the literature is that dosing is just not known for a lot of the things we do. How much of something can we use 
to avoid overtreatment, but to get a, a solid and expected outcome. So when you try to synthesize the dosage of manual therapy, there's a lot of challenges within that. You mentioned some variability already, but one of the big challenges I thought was that about 70% of the studies I think you reported didn't even report the actual dosage as well as they probably could have. And so I'm wondering, why do you think manual therapy research doesn't really report this important component? You know, as, as we would prescribe exercise, we would report the prescription. Why don't we report our prescription with manual therapy? Yeah. And, you know, I think even with exercise, you see the the same trends, you know, where it's, it's not reported as well. And I think, I think we have to first go back to revisit the distinction between like effectiveness versus efficacy trials. I remember reading about this. Uh, Julie Fritz, I think, had a JOSPT editorial back in 2003 uh, talking about this. And it's been kind of one of those hallmark papers in my mind because there's two kind of separate ways to, to run trials. And for those not familiar with these terms, effectiveness trials are ones that are more pragmatic in nature, meaning they mimic more real world clinic scenarios where the application of manual therapy is you know, less rigid. You, you give freedom to the people in the study to you know, perform manual therapy that they see fit for the person in front of you, which is pretty much what you do in clinic day to day. On the flip side, in an efficacy trial, it's more prescriptive. You know, clinicians are going to be using highly standardized approaches. You know, the benefit of this is that it allows a high degree of internal validity, meaning that you can basically interpret the findings of that specific dosage or application of that intervention has a better effect on that outcome. It's easier to pinpoint exactly what that interaction is there. You know, in the literature, we, we need both studies to understand what specific parameters might be needed to get a desired outcome versus, you know, like using uh, flexible applications. You need both to understand that piece. So I think one reason some studies don't report specific parameters is because they are using a more pragmatic trial design because it's just a little easier to uh, you know, do a trial that way because you can allow more flexibility in how that person is applying the intervention. When you do that, though, it, it's harder for you to be specific with the exact dosage being done. So the authors typically don't define it with the amount of detail that we were looking to include in our study. The other reason I think might be due to the actual journals that people may be trying to publish in. Because as Danu, I think, you know, you're aware in your experience publishing, you know, we're up against guidelines where, where we're trying to meet word counts. Um, so authors might feel like they can't expand on this. And I would say, you know, we're probably not necessarily using words to describe parameters. I mean, most of the time you can put it in a table. So I would you know, go look for a supplemental appendix and, and see where this lays out. And that's just what we did. And a lot of the studies that we were hoping to include is we said, okay, it's not really in the methods segment of this RCT. So let's go see if they have a, a protocol or an appendices. We called this out as a limitation in our, in our review, but some articles we actually had to exclude had partial dosing parameters reported in these supplemental appendices. It just didn't meet the depth of what we felt was required in order to answer our 
our review questions, our purposes. You know, one, one limitation is maybe we excluded a trial and there were several of those trials when, you know, I knew about, they, they were well done. They just didn't include the depth of dosing parameters to really include it into what we were looking for. So I think from, from my viewpoint, we almost need a consensus on, you know, what is it that should be reported specific to manual therapy that meets the needs of understanding what dosing parameters are needed. And if you think about what you do in the clinic, you know, think about what you write in your objective part of your SOAP note. That should be, you know, kind of the similar things that we put in our dosing parameters. And a lot of people would just say, you know, we did uh, mobilizations for three bouts of 45 seconds. There was no real talk about what direction that was done. What was the intensity or grade that was being utilized? You know, how many times per week was it done? How long over the plan of care was it done? And to me, that's really important as a clinician because, all right, great, three bouts of 45 seconds, that's great. But like, if I want to get the same results, if they're positive for that application, I want to be able to apply it with as much detail and reproducibility in the clinic that that. RCT was able to do. So the more you can kind of display that or show it in a video or something, the better. And I think that's really where we kind of have to come together and say, this is what we should, we should be reporting. And as a disclaimer, that's not a knock on anybody publishing because I know my notes are terrible and my documentation (laughs) is not good. Uh, So there are a a number of things that play into it though. Like you said, journals, even um, within people that are using manual therapy, there's a there's a challenge with the terminology that we're using, and not everybody does the same thing in the same way and understands the same grading process or whatever you might be using. One thing you did notice, and you mentioned it a little bit already, is that there were certain types of manual therapy. I think you said mobilization with movement and thrust techniques tended to have the better outcomes versus graded mobilizations. And it seems like everybody has a a different educational background where they think their technique is the best. (laughs) And for what it's worth, I think the intervention you're providing, you get better at it. And so you're going to continue to do it. But based on your outcomes, do you think it would be appropriate to recommend that certain techniques should be performed for people with hip OA? Yeah, you know, and we, we, we set out to try to find that optimal dosage and we just weren't able to determine that. But we did observe, you know, some trends in our review. And, and the first, like you had mentioned, is the largest within group effects for pain and range of motion and uh, function and performance outcomes uh, were seen when using a long axis thrust, uh, specifically performing several thrusts. Uh, one RCT did it up to like nine times. Um, and clinically, this is really what I found you know, to make uh, good changes in range of motion in particular, even pain, you know, doing several thrusts going into a more closed pack position of the hip. You know, when I first started learning this, this technique, I thought maybe you only had to do it one or two times and then you're like good to go. But the more I've used it clinically, I've found that, you know, you almost are assessing end feel as you're doing that long axis and is it starts to get a little bit more bouncy, if you will, you, you kind of get a better feel like, okay, it's, it's something's changing. It's, it's loosening up, it's becoming less protective. So, you know, that was almost a little bit of a, a bias confirmation there to say, okay, that's probably clinically what I've seen. When you look at, you know, using longer bouts of non-thrust long axis mobilizations, 
uh, we found that, you know, if you're doing that for three to six sets for 30 to 45 seconds using a high force input around like 16 pounds of force for uh, 10 minutes had large, again, within group changes in pain and range of motion. If someone has limited hip flexion or internal rotation, mobilization with movement techniques, targeting those two movements was something we found to have both large within group and between group changes for pain and range of motion. So that's the mobilization with movement technique was one of the only ones that actually had a large between group assessment in in pain. And so that was something that was uh, good to see and interesting to see. And then finally, you know, if you're looking at uh, the plan of care, manual therapy sessions ranging from 10 to 30 minutes, there's quite variability as we've, you know, talked about at a frequency of two to three times per week for a duration of two to six weeks had the largest changes. But as I've mentioned, and I, I just want to make it clear and reiterate, you know, the listener should really give pause to some of these recommendations given the lack of the between group effects for many of the outcomes reported in, in our study. And, and really to marry this all together, you really should be using manual therapy in this population for a, a fraction of the entire session. You know, exercise really needs to be the hallmark of the session. But as you know, Danu, manual therapy is a nice way to introduce the person in pain to exercise um, in order to get better range of motion or to have less pain. So for example, if someone has pain with hip flexion, you know, say getting into a car, you know, uh, you could maybe start with a few minutes of hip distraction, both thrust and non-thrust, you know, recheck their ability to get uh, up and down, you know, that asterisk sign. And then if you needed to get more hip flexion, use a mobilization with movement, you know, reassess and then work into um, exercise, whether you're doing loaded squats or hip hinging exercises that kind of mimic that motion. And again, if you're a clinician who's, you know, has a 30 minute follow-up session or you're 45 minutes and you're spending 75% of the time, you know, doing manual therapy, you're probably over utilizing the techniques based on the evidence. You would almost want to flip it 25%. And again, this is, you know, this is my kind of interpretation, 25% manual therapy, 75% movement of some sort that empowers the patient, loads the joint, and uh, of course, the other piece, you know, being education, that's important in this group as well. There seems to be so many different roads to Rome in that way, is that there's a lot of different ways to, to apply manual therapy. And if you're going to use it, it should just be a small component. I think we're all in agreement of that. That shouldn't dominate necessarily the treatment session. It should be a component to help people get better sooner. But as a researcher, this type of topic is exciting to me because we should be investigating the mechanism of how things work and the specific dosage of how things could be most effective. But the clinician in me also thinks, well, if something helps, I don't really care about the specific research if it's not going to be specific to my patient. So if something's going to help, it's going to help, you know? And so I, I do step back sometimes and think, well, in these studies, we use a lot of times manual therapy for people that are stiff or in pain. And when we think about stiffness, we think about assessing the stiffness with joint mobility. And there's a lot of questionable reliability studies out there on how effective is it in assessing the joint and how stiff is it. 
And then there's also a lot of subjectivity and pain. And so different people are going to be in different levels of pain for a lot of different reasons. So the outcomes we're using a lot of times tend to make me think it's hard to be very objective, actually, about the outcomes uh, in these studies. And so is it possible in this way to just consider manual therapy as just a constantly moving target of it needs to be individualized and finding a dosage might not actually be relevant for this type of intervention? Or should we still be trying to find out the best way to apply it in every single case? Oh, I, I love this question. So it's my opinion. I think we have dosage almost focused in the wrong spot. When I think about this, I think about what I kind of coin as developing a person-centered hypothesis. And a person-centered hypothesis involves the clinician to identify what pain mechanism or mechanisms is at play, what pathoanatomy and impairments might be present, as well as looking at complicating or influencing factors that may be contributing to the overall pain output that someone's experiencing. So I'll, I'll give the listeners two examples where I think this comes into play and how we look at dosage of manual therapy in those with HIPOA a little differently. So the first example is a person who presents with primary nociceptive pain mechanisms, uh, maybe with several months of symptoms associated with HIPOA in the environment of, let's say, impaired hip mobility, but they're in, this is all influenced by a fear of, quote, damaging the hip. So for this case, given the primary pain mechanism is nociceptive in nature, we, we may be able to dose manual therapy with more vigor if irritability allows. The second example that's a little bit different but similar is the person who presents with several years of hip pain presenting with signs of both nociplastic or central sensitization style presentation and nociceptive pain mechanisms associated with hip OA in the environment of impaired hip mobility, but might be influenced by poor sleep and eating patterns. So for this case, given the pain mechanisms at play and the potential for higher irritability and some of the other things going on in that person's life, we may need to dose manual therapy with less vigor and less time during that particular session and maybe for less sessions. So when we think about that second case, we're probably going to spend more time on addressing those lifestyle behaviors because the literature shows, especially those with osteoarthritis, you know, if you're not eating appropriately and if you're not sleeping well, it's going to ramp up one's pain experience. What I've seen clinically is that PTs often want a catch-all dosage for a given pathoanatomic diagnosis such as HIPOA, when in fact we're treating a person, not just a diagnosis. So the dosage will likely be dependent upon a multitude of things in that hypothesis. You know, the, pain, the primary pain mechanism the impairments found in the environment of whatever pathology is going on and you know what other whatever complicating or influencing factors are at play if we don't take this into account we are only doing the very thing we criticize practitioners who make treatment decisions based off of imaging findings where we drive treatment decisions based off of sole pathoanatomic diagnoses so in my mind, 
it is a moving kind of target. But if you take into account those person-centered components into a hypothesis, I think you can better tweak the manual therapy to address those, those pieces. And then you can say, all right, I only had this much time to, to dedicate and the priorities are, are elsewhere. So I should be doing less manual therapy, more lifestyle education, pain education and loading. So that's kind of where I think we need to be focusing more of our attention and how to, to go in that direction. Uh, even more so over like treatment-based classifications, which is kind of a, a whole other you know, box to go into. But that's, you know, as we were writing this up, it just kind of reinforced that for me, at least in, in HIPAA way. Yeah. And I think that's a really important topic that could be a, a completely different and important discussion as well as then thinking about HIPAA way is not just HIPAA way, but it's the person with HIPAA way that might present primarily with m- maybe more peripheral nociceptive versus nociplastic or mixed presentations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously there's a lot of variables and we've talked about a few of them that will complicate the ability to find out a specific dose of manual therapy or exercise or education or any specific intervention because everybody presents differently. But one of the challenges with recommendations from systematic reviews, and this is, I think a lot of times, um, why consumers of research get kind of frustrated sometimes is the the conclusion gets so watered down is that, you know, we did this really thorough systematic review and found out that we can't give you a specific answer, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, One of the things that's challenging about doing that from a research perspective is the reporting of the evidence from the specific studies. And so if the studies aren't reporting specifically, it makes it harder to create a conclusion. And so in a perfect world, because manual therapy, we talked about the variability in it and the, the types and the dosage and all that kind of stuff. In a perfect world, what are some kind of key points you would love to see that help us give more definitive answers to clinicians when we're thinking about HIPOA or, or other health conditions? Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a good question to, to consider. And this really kind of builds off my last point, you know, taking a person-centered approach with those uh, suffering from from HIPOA, I think that's you know kind of point number one, and I think based off that, you need to look at pain mechanisms more specifically as a variable within the analyses. I I don't think we're reporting on that enough, you know, as a as a determination of what the person's presenting with. We do a great job of looking at specific impairments like range of motion and measuring one's pain output intensity through MPRS, we're just not really defining, you know, hey, was this person presenting with signs and symptoms associated with nociception or neuropathic pain or nociplastic? Because I think that changes the environment. The nervous system will perceive stimuli from touch. Um, So I think that perspective is is something that needs more attention. uh, And I think it will help define you know, what, what people are starting to define as pain phenotypes, which will, I think, help with manual therapy dosage. My hypothesis is that the dosage of manual therapy will be different based off of the pain mechanism. And I think with that, you know, it, it will change the way that we view how manual therapy should be utilized. And then I think we called this out in our discussion, but I think there needs to be more of an incorporation of psychosocial factors 
like stress, anxiety, fear, catastrophization into analyses. And really, this is across the board, but in particular with HIPOA, uh, to better determine how these play into dosing parameters. You know, th- this was something we found that was vastly just completely neglected as as variables. There were some studies that looked at this. Benell did a nice job in their uh, trial that was published in JAMA, but it's just not, you know, given what we see in the literature now, we need more attention on some of these things that influence pain and function. We also should consider uh, quantitative sensory testing in those with HIPOA, things like pain uh, pressure threshold, maybe vibration sense, two-point discrimination, to see if these outcomes change, especially you know, considering that osteoarthritis is usually a persistent or chronic condition. You know, folks are usually experiencing pain usually for, for years. Um, so we, we can't just assume that there's not going to be those changes in the peripheral and central nervous system. And nobody seems to be including these consistently in HIPOA trials. So it's kind of my hypothesis that in HIPOA or really in just NEOA in general, if if we change these QST measures, you probably will see those changes before there may be changes in pain or function. So you may say oh, manual therapy is garbage for you know these pain states, yet maybe manual therapy is changing some of those quantitative sensory outcomes, and maybe it's not at the point where it would change pain or function. And then I think finally, we need to have more integration and assessment of lifestyle behaviors related to sleep quality and quantity, what people eat, and how much physical activity the person's getting. And you know how to integrate that into a manual therapy approach. Again, we have to stop looking at just hypothesizing a single pathoanatomic diagnosis because if you're if your decision making and reasoning is surrounding a name, you're going to forget about the person in which that name lives. And so, to me, we need more person centered care related to ONPT. It's a great way to put it. And then the idea that capturing more information on the person's perception. I think that's essential when we think about trials in general. We do trials very biomedically, but we know that pain is is so different than what we can see on on some of these tests and scans and things. So I would be a huge proponent of capturing more about the demographic information and psychosocial variables and doing tests that can actually detect change maybe a little bit more specifically like QST. But on my last question, I'm going to ask you, what other kind of work do you have in the pipeline? What other types of studies can our listeners kind of keep an eye out for from you? Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, you know, as you could probably hear from my last couple answers there, I'm, I'm getting in more to the lifestyle behavior, lifestyle medicine within physical therapy. Uh, some of my uh, research that I've been working with uh, Brett Nielsen and, and Chris Dickerson, other uh, DSC Students at the time when we were doing this at Bellin College, um, we were looking at sleep in uh, people with spine pain and just, you know, what are their beliefs and perceptions about sleep? Uh, I'm kind of looking at nutrition as well and pain. I think, you know, that's a, another big piece that kind of is is of interest. But those are kind of the, the next things coming out. Um, I've also got uh, some work in, in pain education in DPT that we're uh, working with uh, folks like Carol Courtney and and others on. So, you know, lots of 
exciting stuff. I kind of spread myself around to keep interested, but um, you know, definitely found it very valuable to to do a systematic review. I learned a lot from the process and, and hope to contribute to more reviews in the future and uh, hopefully push manual therapy forward. You know, I, I think like you said, Danu, it gets it, you know, manual therapy is kind of getting a bad rap. And I think it's great to be critical of these things because you're putting manual therapy kind of where it needs to be. But I think if we're saying it's not effective, I think we're dismissing a lot of research that's being done. I think, you know, you just got to take a person-centered approach and and learn how to to contribute that into the overall plan and, and sessions that you're providing. So I appreciate you uh, letting me come on the show. And I appreciate you taking the time. I know you have a lot on your plate and I'm looking forward to some of the studies that you're going to be putting forward in your future work. So Dr. Shepard, I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah. And thanks to the listeners too, for, for listening in. I appreciate it. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.